All right, we are back. Here we go, part two of the lecture on the Trinity. Uh, if you have not watched part one uh, or listened to part one, then you should do that. If you uh, maybe missed that or didn't see it or didn't realize or you think this is part one, it's not, it is part two. Um, and so if you missed the first part of the lecture on the Trinity, then I would go back and listen to that or watch that. Uh, I'm sharing my screen, so if you're listening to this, then you won't see the screen, but if you're watching it, you will. But we've put the notes, the slide, the slide deck, into a Google Drive folder that we've given you the link to, so that if you wanna listen to it and follow along with the notes that way, if that's better for you, then you're welcome to do that. So we, in the first part, we dealt with the really the bedrock of the doctrine of the Trinity. And just to repeat it again, uh, we talked about how God eternally exists as one essence in three distinct persons, each of whom is fully God, right? Um, that was what we were discussing. But now we're going to move to the relationships between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we're going to focus in on distinction of persons. We were pretty emphatic in that first part about the unity of essence. We start there and we moved towards distinction of persons. And now we're going to really begin to talk about the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What distinguishes the Father from the Son and the Spirit? What distinguishes the Son from the Father and the Spirit? And what distinguishes the Spirit from the Father and the Son? So let's begin. When we think about God the Father, we need to begin by understanding God the Father as eternally unbegotten. Okay, this is the this is how we have discussed God the Father throughout the history of the church, eternally unbegotten. Which this means that there uh, that when we think about eternally unbegotten as a phrase, it's really a phrase of relationship to contrast the relationship that the Father has with the Son and the Spirit, and that the Son has with the Father and the Spirit, and the Spirit has with the Father and the Son. So to say that God the Father is eternally unbegotten is to say that He is the Father, and that he is the fount of divinity, okay? The fount of divinity, meaning that the Son and the Spirit uh, eternally proceed or have been eternally beget from God the Father. So what is the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit? Well, the Father, God the Father, is the fount of divinity. He is the origin or source of salvation and divine action. This does not mean that the Father created the Son and the Spirit, it doesn't mean that the Father was created before the Son and the Spirit. It merely means that when we're trying to understand the relationship between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, the best way to understand it, according to uh, Scripture, is that the Son and the Spirit are proceeding from or are begotten from God the Father. Now, this really comes into contrast when we consider the work of the Son, and who the son is because if the father god the father is eternally unbegotten if he is the source of salvation and the history of salvation then what distinguishes the son from the father and the spirit well the son is eternally begotten his relationship to the father is as a son to the father he is eternally begotten begotten here uh, you can think about generated eternal generation uh, essentially that the god the son has always existed in relationship to god the father as son to father and so when we think about the relationship here we need to remember this me does not mean that the son possesses less divinity god the son is fully divine he's of the same substance and essence of the father but the distinction in their relationship is important to remember there is god the father 
God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the Father exists in relationship to the Son as eternally unbegotten, and the Son exists in relationship to the Father as eternally begotten. I mean, let me just give you some places in Scripture where you might be able to see this play out. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is speaking about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You think about John 5, 26, for the Father, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. You see this relationship here between the Father and the Son. You think about Jesus really making the point that the Father and the Son are one in John 10, 30, when he says, I and the Father are one. Hebrews 1.3, speaking about Jesus Christ, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Probably when you're trying to get the idea of eternally begotten, maybe the best place to go is also one of the areas where in church history there was the most widespread misunderstanding, which is in Colossians 1, when it says that Jesus Christ is the firstborn of all creation. Now, the Greek word that's used here in Colossians 1 is the Greek word prototokos. The firstborn word here, the firstborn in the ancient Near East, was not primarily about the generation of that person, about the birth of that person physically, but about primacy. Uh, firstborn was a designation that mattered in terms of supremacy or glory or worth. And so when Colossians 1 says that Jesus Christ was the firstborn over all creation, it's not saying that he was born. It's saying that he is the preeminent one that his relationship to God the Father is as the preeminent expression of God's life in the world. And so when we're thinking about God the Son, his distinction from the Father is that while the Father is eternally unbegotten, the Son was eternally and is eternally begotten, fully divine of one essence, one substance with God the Father. Now, there was an early church heresy where the church had to clarify their opinions on this. And that heresy was Arianism. Arianism emerged from a, a pastor, a hymn writer uh, even, uh, named Arius. And Arius denied the preexistence of the Son of God, meaning Arius believed there was a time in which, God, which, in which Jesus Christ, God the Son, did not exist. There was a time in which God the Son was not. He was created, he was born, um, and uh, he, he went to Colossians 1 to argue this, that he was the firstborn. Now, Arius' misunderstanding grew like wildfire in the life of the early church, and eventually the Council of Nicaea responded, and they responded because of the witness of the church. And Nicaea said this in response, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. So when we think about this, there was a question, and you can see if you're looking at the slides, two phrases here, or two words, homoousios and homoousios. Now, this is an incredibly important distinction. Arius was very willing to say that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was homoousios, homoousios, meaning that he was of a similar substance to God the Father, okay? 
That's what Arius was fine saying. He was like, listen, he's still real. God the Son is still really important. I, I think he's like God, but he's not of the same substance of God the Father. And Nicaea responded, as Scripture reveals, that Jesus Christ is not of similar substance to God the Father, homoousios. He is of the same substance as God the Father, homoousios, same substance. Now, it's incredibly important because if you remember from the first part of this lecture, that word, ousios, it may, it may remind you that when we talked about God eternally existing as one essence in three distinct persons, that word essence or substance, I said, it's the Greek word ousios. And here it is again. The early church was having a conversation about this and were really willing to kind of put their lives and witness on the line to communicate that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is of the very same substance as God the Father. So it raised the question, well, then in what way is the Son distinct from the Father? This goes back to what we discussed in part one as ad intra relationships, the relationships between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the interior life, if you will, of the Godhead, and that the Son possesses a relationship to God the Father that is different than the relationship that the Spirit has with the Father and the Son. So the Son's relationship to God the Father is a familial paternal, paternal relationship, okay? God the Father, eternally unbegotten. God the Son, eternally begotten. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. Headline here, on God the Son, there was never a time when the Son of God did not exist. Now, to really throw your mind for a loop here, and just to kind of get you thinking about like, oh boy, what's going on? There was a time when Jesus Christ did not exist. What? <laughs> that's more of just like a, that's something that I, maybe you'll ask at the Zoom Q&A. Uh, and we'll, we'll deal with in detail when we get to Christology in the spring. So there was never a time when God the Son did not exist, but it's very reasonable to say there was a time when Jesus the Christ did not exist. Let that cook your noodle for a second. Okay, so that's the Father, God the Father, eternally unbegotten, God the Son, eternally begotten, fully divine, both the Father and the Son. God the Son is homoousios of the same substance as God the Father. But let's talk for a moment about God the Holy Spirit. So what distinguishes the Spirit from the Father and the Son? Well, if God the Father is eternally unbegotten and God the Son is eternally begotten, the Holy Spirit, according to the witness of Scripture and the history of the church, is eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. God the Holy Spirit is eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. Let me give you some examples of this in the Gospel of John. John 14, 16, and I will ask the Father, this is Jesus speaking, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. This is the Holy Spirit. John 15, 26, which is on the slide, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Okay, so there you get that procession language. That's why the church has used that language. It's not just because they felt like, oh, I, mean, I guess eternally proceeding sounds good. Um, no, um, 
they, they use the language of procession because it was a good faithful word uh, that corresponded with the witness of scripture. John 16, 13 would be another place. It says, when the spirit of truth comes, this is Jesus speaking again, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So this is the idea of eternally proceeding. So God, the father, eternally unbegotten, fount of divinity, God, the son, eternally begotten. Okay. Relationship to the father, father, to son, eternally begotten, not made of the same substance as God, the father. The Holy Spirit of the same substance of God the, as God the Father and God the Son. The Spirit is homoousios, the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit, one essence. And yet the Spirit's relationship from the Father and the Son is eternally proceeding. The Holy Spirit is the gift of the Father and the Son, but he is no less God because he is their gift. He is sent by the Father as the Son was sent by the Father, and in this sending relationship, they do not lose any of their equality, worth, glory, or unity of will. Back to that doctrine of inseparable operations. Whatever the Father does, the Son and the Spirit are together. Whatever the Son does, the Father and the Spirit are together. Whatever the Spirit does, the Father and the Son are together. So going back to our definition of the Trinity, and the reason I keep coming back to this is because the definition of the Trinity functions as a bedrock. I know we're exploring some terrain that just feels challenging. I get it. It is challenging. If you feel challenged by it, it's because it's challenging. If it feels really tough to comprehend, it's because it's tough to comprehend. Just don't be hard on yourself right now feeling like, man, Am I the only one not understanding this? No, you're, everybody is not understanding this. We're grasping and the church is grasped. This definition functions as a bedrock we can return to again and again and again, okay? So this is what it says. God eternally exists as one essence, right? Usias, right? One substance, one essence in three distinct persons. God the Father, eternally unbegotten. God the Son, eternally begotten, and God the Holy Spirit, eternally proceeding, each of whom is fully God. That's the one substance, homoousios. And yet there is one God. That's the unity of divine will, of the Godhead, the doctrine of inseparable operations. And so when we're thinking about the definition of the Trinity, remember, unity of essence, one essence, one substance, distinction of persons, how the Father relates to the Son and the Spirit is different than how the Son relates to the Father and the Spirit, and it's different from how the Spirit relates to the Father and the Son, and yet there is one God and unity of divine action. Now, most heresies that have presented themselves in the history of the church, specifically around the doctrine of God, uh, are going to violate one of those three values of the doctrine of the Trinity. Let me give you an example. Um, hierarchical thinking or subordinationist thinking is going to violate the unity of, of essence. Why? Well, because it's essentially going to create tears in the Godhead. When you have God, the father is kind of like God, number one, God, the son is God, number two, and God, the Holy spirit is God, number three. It's like three ranks. And when you do that, you've immediately disrupted the unity of essence of the Godhead, that there is three persons, one God. You can't lose unity of essence. If you, you lose unity of essence, 
you lose, well, preeminently, you're going to lose the doctrine of salvation because the son cannot secure our salvation if he is not fully God. If he is kind of diet God, then it's diet salvation, and that's not good for anybody, okay? So if you have hierarchical thinking in the Godhead or subordinationist thinking in the Godhead, you lose unity of essence. Distinction of persons. Now, here is a heresy that can feel a little hard to explain, but you know it when you see it. Okay, let me give you an example of uh, distinction of persons. Modalism is this heresy. Now, this can play itself out in this way. You'll hear somebody talk about God like this. Um, there's one God, and he kind of takes on three different appearances. Think about modalism as kind of a masks thing, where it's like, um, when, when God, the father is speaking, uh, he's got, his God, uh, God has the, the father mask on when the son is speaking, he's got the son mask on. And when the spirit is speaking, he's got the spirit mask on. Okay. Modalism is essentially there's one God and he has three manifestations. He appears three different ways. That's, that's modalism, right? Um, when you hear some, somebody say, well, you know, the old Testament God, that's modalism. I mean, you're already in modalism. There is the old Testament. God is the Trinity. There's only one God in the world and in the Bible and in the story of scripture and the story of the world, and that's the Trinity. Okay, so uh, when you say, well, the Old Testament God or, you know, God, uh, the God who created the world is different than the God who comes in Jesus. That would be modalism. Essentially, modalism is the idea that there is one God, but he appears in three different ways over the course of scripture. That's modalism. Okay, um, when you hear somebody talk about, well, uh, God the Father, you know, thank you, God the Father, for dying on the cross. Father, thank you for dying on the cross. That's a prayer that has slipped into modalism. Why? Because you've attributed the unique work of one person of the Godhead to God the Father. Okay? So there is equality of essence, but there is distinction of persons. And you got to hold those two things together. If you lose unity of essence through subordinationism, then you're going to lose equality. If you lose the distinction of persons, then you're going to fall into modalism. Okay? Lastly, the unity of divine action. This is the Father, Son, and the Spirit are working together at all times. That's the doctrine of inseparable operations. If you begin to talk about, well, the Son of God did this in a way that seems like, well, where was God the Father or God the Holy Spirit, then you're going to slip into tritheism, where you essentially overemphasize the distinction of persons and you lose the unity of essence. So you functionally begin to talk about three different gods, not three persons in one God, but three different gods, right? So something like this, um, again, would just be any time that you start to feel like, okay, what's happening in Scripture you need to always keep in mind, if Jesus is the one that's being talked about, the Father and the Spirit are an active part of what's going on, even if they're not explicitly mentioned. I mean, think about the ministry of Jesus in the Gospels. I mean, and you stop and consider, what is the Father and the Spirit doing, right? What are the Father and the Spirit doing? Well, the Father and the Spirit are doing the work that Jesus is doing through his ministry. The Spirit has anointed Jesus. The Father has pronounced and blessed and sent him for ministry. This is that doctrine of inseparable operations, that whatever the Father does, the Son and the Spirit are together. Whatever the Son does, the Father and the Spirit together. Uh, whatever the Spirit does, the Father and the Son are together. If you lose unity of divine action, then you will end up in tritheism, where you, have, you functionally will have three gods operating in the course of the world. And this comes up all the time. 
So here's what I want us to do. We're going to take a break again, and this is, means that I'm going to switch over. There will be a third part to this lecture, and the third part to this lecture will be about 10 or 15 minutes long, really focusing on the impact that the doctrine of the Trinity should have on the Christian life. So we're going to take what we've been thinking through and, and kind of considering, and then we're going to kind of zoom down on how it impacts the Christian life. So how does the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, how does the unity of divine essence, how does that impact our life of discipleship, of worship, mission, and obedience? And so uh, I would encourage you when you get to part three that you would listen to that all the way through in one sitting, or you'd watch it all the way through in one sitting, but I'm going to stop sharing my screen now, and we will switch over. You can skip over to the next part, and we will finish out our lecture on the